Good morning. Uh, today, uh, different kind of sermon, a little bit different kind of message. I am doing John chapter 8. And this morning, that is, that is the passage of uh, the woman who is caught in adultery. And so I wanted to say a few words before I dig into that text. When you open your Bibles to it, which you could right now if you'd like to, um, John chapter 8, you'll notice that it says there are some ancient manuscripts that don't contain that passage, which is true. Uh, if you look at the oldest Greek manuscripts that we've got, and we call the science of this, it's called uh, textual criticism. I did a little bit of that in my undergraduate work, like compared passages and what's the original reading. Um, a whole bunch of people get paid to do that. You know, scholars do that. They, they try to find out what's the original reading of a passage. Well, this one in particular uh, is, uh, I think most people consider that John probably didn't write this, this John 8 section that we're going to look at. However, probably it was passed down from person to person. You know, it's an oral culture. People are telling stories. And what we, what we think is, what we believe is, this was a historical account of Jesus, a story that was shared, and somebody said, this really needs to be included in the Gospels. This really ought to be in here. And so some people put it in one section of John, some people put it in another section of John, but it ended up in John chapter 8, and I think that's a good location for it, as you will see in a moment. I will quote one scholar for you. I, lo I looked at a lot of scholars on this particular passage before I got ready to preach it. And I like what Bruce Metzger has to say. I think he's a Princeton theologian. And he says, The account has all the earmarks of historical veracity, which is scholarly talk for. It's true. <laughs> it sounds true. It is true. And it certainly doesn't contradict Anything Jesus has said or done, you know, it kind of fits with the flow of everything Jesus does. So I am preaching it as a very historical and true account of what Jesus has said and done. I think we can be confident in it, even if John may not have been the one to actually originally write it. Um, secondly, the second thing I want to say to you is this. Um, it's a tough story. It deals with a difficult topic. But I want to tell you that I'm not preaching it through the lens of uh, adultery is sin. I, I'm not looking at it through that lens, even though we all know that. Uh, so if, if that's an uncomfortable topic for some of you, I'm actually preaching it through the lens of hypocrisy. Because I believe the woman who was caught in adultery stayed in the light of Christ while her accusers walked away from Christ and remained in darkness. I think that's what's going on here. And I'm going to preach it that way. So hopefully it won't be uncomfortable to anybody as, as we go through this. Um, I want to bear that in mind. And uh, with that, I'm going to pray and we're going to jump in. Okay, Father, as we look at this passage today, I pray that you would open our eyes to it. What I appreciate about you is that you have given us direction in your word. You've shown us the path of life and light. You've also shown us where the darkness goes. And you've invited us to step into your light. Would you help us do that even now? Illuminate your word to us and to our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you're there, John 8, 
I'm actually going to start in 753 because I think it's a nice lead in to John 8, 753. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they had said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. And he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. She, may, she probably loves this holiday more than any other. I mean, yes, Passover is wonderful. Day of Atonement is sobering. But this is the Feast of Tabernacles. You get, you get seven days with like a festival atmosphere in Jerusalem. There's jugglers and torch throwers. There's food. There's dancing. It's just a great time. Think about it. Think about it like this. It's like Thanksgiving with seven days of camping all combined. Kids love it. It's a good time. And, and the people of Israel, they would, they would build these booths just like the Lord told them because they, they are people of the book. They live by the book. And to celebrate Israel leaving Egypt all those hundreds of years ago and living in tents in the wilderness, they would set up tents at harvest time. So you're celebrating the harvest. You're celebrating the bounty of the Lord. In truth, it's kind of funny because it's kind of a cooler time of year and very rainy. Who wants to be outside during that time? But God commanded it. Build some booths. Live in them. Live in a tent for seven days. Yes, she loves the Feast of Tabernacles. But maybe, even like American traditions and how we do holidays, it can easily be corrupted. People can drink a little too much, get into trouble. I mean, you think about it, for us, we have Christmas and we celebrate Santa Claus. We have Easter and we remember the Easter Bunny. And so how easily a... Religious, holy tradition can just go off course. That evening she was meeting people. Her husband was out of town, maybe, on business in Egypt. She was alone. Loves meeting people. And as she danced with friends, she met a man. It began to rain. They talked, took shelter went to the booth. Before you know it, she woke up the next morning with regret. 
that morning when she woke up, she looked over and he was gone. But she looked up and through the palm branches that covered her little tent, she saw robes. Her heart sank. She, she gasped. Pharisees. They reached their hands in and ripped her out of the booth. She clutched her clothes, embarrassed, ashamed, sunlight hitting her in the face, and they dragged her out of there. She cried out for help, but these were the leaders. You, you don't get help from them. And they dragged her into the temple in front of a teaching rabbi who had a large group of people all around him. And they brought her to him. She was the trap. They were going to spring on him. And so they said, Teacher, we found this woman in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? The trap is set, waiting to be sprung. And this is the trap. This is what's going on. The idea would be, if the rabbi says, don't stone her, that he violates the law of Moses. He violates their whole religion. He's a phony. If he says, go ahead and stone her, and they actually do that, then probably one or two things would happen. He loses popularity with the people who see him as a gracious teacher and identify with him. He loses popularity. But also, Rome holds the power of life and death. You remember that, right? They hold the power of capital punishment. And so if Jesus said, go ahead, stone her, they can go to the Roman authorities and say, look what this teacher's doing. He's breaking Roman law. Now hold on. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, could she really have been stoned in that culture? Was it even an option? Were they setting up a false dilemma? I think her danger is real. She knows her danger is real. She might have seen in the past an angry mob aroused by somebody that was teaching something false, blaspheming God, and the crowd, so angry, so incensed, grabbed rocks and threw them at the person until the person died. Remember Jesus escaping a few close calls from being stoned? You remember Stephen and Acts getting stoned by an angry mob? Apparently, the Romans did hold the power of life and death over a person, the power of capital punishment. But if a mob gets out of control and things happen, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? As long as it's under the radar, everything's okay. So the trap is ready. What do you say we should do, teacher? What do we do with this woman? And instead, he totally ignores them and begins writing on the ground. Oblivious almost to what they're saying to him. Now, some versions of this story, it says that Jesus is writing their sins on the ground. 
liar, thief, lust. And they're watching him do that. I don't know if that's what happened. Maybe it was something like Jeremiah, who will put up the screen behind me. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. Shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. I don't know what he wrote in the ground. And none of us do. But I can tell you this. Whatever he wrote in the ground, it was devastating. Can we agree on that? They see what's going on. They see where this whole thing is going. And they're getting nervous. Because it looks like this guy is stalling for time. And yet he's writing things that make us all uncomfortable. And so they say, give us an answer. And it's like they say, We're people of the book. We live by the book. We live by the rules. Are you going to live by the rules or not? Give us an answer, Rabbi. And at that, he straightens up. He stands up as if to give a formal command. And he does give a command. It's an imperative. It's not a if you want to. It's a you must. He says, Let him who is without sin be the first. Be the first. Be the first to cast the stone. It is a command. And you've got to understand this about Jesus. Sometimes when you read Jesus and you see what he's talking about and there's all these people throwing questions and challenges at him, it's like he quotes things and they quote things and it's like a biblical kung fu. Can we call it that? You know, Jesus is the master, you know. I'm going to give you a Proverbs and you give me an Ecclesiastes. And, you know, it, 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 just, it just goes like that. And so they have said, Law of Moses commands us to stone this woman. They're absolutely true. They're, that's right. We're people of the book. We live by the book. And Jesus says this, Let him who is without sin be the first, be the first to cast a stone. And Jesus has a counter move here. I think it comes out of Deuteronomy. Can we put that up now? Yes, a woman and the man should be stoned if they're caught in adultery. And this says, Deuteronomy 17.6, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be, listen to this, the hand of the witnesses shall be first shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterwards, the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And I'm just seeing the shall be first. Let him who is without sin, that person shall be first. Now, I know for us, it might be lost on us because we can't quote Deuteronomy like the back of our, you know, whatever. But but back then, they memorized books of the Bible. Like, that's just what people did. You just had this in your mind. So for Jesus to say, you will be the first, they know what he's referring to. It's biblical kung fu. It's totally that. And Jesus has thrown his punch. And they receive it. 
and they know what he's saying. Maybe, we're, we, maybe we haven't made connections to what Jesus is saying, but they knew what he is saying. Some people want to say that when Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, um, that that means that the only way you can condemn something or be against something or, or inflict some sort of discipline on something um, would be if you were completely flawlessly innocent and holy, you know, in every single way. I don't think Jesus is teaching that. But what he is teaching, what he's saying is this. We're people of the book. We live by the book. So bring your witnesses forward. For that matter, bring the man forward. Where's he at? And what he does is he exposes their hypocrisy. What he's saying here is, if any of you is completely blameless in bringing this woman out like this, if you are totally innocent in what you have done this morning in bringing her to me, go ahead. In fact, I command you, it's an imperative, cast the first stone. If you're blameless, if you've done this by the book. Now, I don't know exactly how they broke the law in doing this. I think, for one, they didn't get the man. So was the man a setup? You know, was he sent to this woman just to bring this whole matter about? I don't know. Or did they let the man go and say, we only need her for this trap to be sprung? I don't know. But something was wrong in the process. And if they caught them in the very act of adultery, if that's really how it went down, don't you stop the adultery from happening? Or do you just let it, let it go until you can take the woman later? Something doesn't work in this story. Something shows that those men had bad motivations and sinful intentions in what they did to bring this woman out. They are hypocrites. They're hypocrites. And Jesus exposes them for what they are. Now, the word hypocrite is um, its a Greek word that referred to an actor. Actors are... So, so, you know, it used to be a good thing, right? You'd be a good hypocrite. You know, Tom Hanks is a good hypocrite, don't you think? I think so. Um, I actually watched an interview with him recently, and he was talking about, like, when he plays, when he plays a historical, like a real-life person, how does he get into the role? And, he, and Tom Hanks said, you know, I sit down with the person that I'm going to play in the movie, whoever that person is. And, and, and I say to them, I say to them this, I'm you. For better or for worse, I'm you. He says, but I'm going to say things you never said. I'm going to go places you've never been. And I'm going to do things you never did. But that being said, I want to be as authentic as possible. And, and so the reason he sits down with people is so he can pick up maybe posture Maybe a tick of some sort, maybe a turn of phrase. He says, I want to pick up something from the person that I'm with that I can use when, I, when I'm them in the movie. Hypocrites. They are actually one thing, but they pretend to be something else. That is a hypocrite. And it's something that I think we in the church have to always be on guard for. That we look around and say, your sin's bad. Let's drag you out into the town square. No talking about my sin, please. Let's just deal with yours right now. 
This is us in so many ways when we worry about other people. When we use other people's sin to make us feel better about our sin. It can't possibly be as big and severe as theirs. This is what we do. These are the games we play. How can we talk about sin in the church without being a hypocrite ourselves? Because aren't we all to talk about sin? Well, I came to that during cross-training, right? You know, don't you have to talk about sin at some point when you, when you evangelize to somebody? You do have to bring it up. How do you do it in a way that doesn't make you a big hypocrite? Let me give four suggestions from this passage on how you can talk about sin with people without you yourself being a hypocrite like those men that dragged the woman out. Number one, be inward. Be inward. Now you're like, inward's not something that I talk about. you know. No, no, this is before you open your mouth. Before you open your mouth, you have to be a person that is totally concerned about your heart above all others. I'm worried about the plank coming out of my eye, not your speck. I want to get to your speck eventually, but I am totally focused on my sin because my sin seems like the worst sin to me. At least Paul said that, right? I'm the chief of sinners. Oh, that we would all feel like that. (laughs) My sin is the worst sin. And I'll have you notice, um, if you go back in the text to John 8, uh, right before John 8, um, this is Feast of Tabernacles, as we talked about earlier. Uh, 7.53 says, They each went to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Everybody went home, not Jesus, he's homeless. He goes to the Mount of Olives. What does Jesus do at the Mount of Olives? Well, typically, he, he spends time with his Father and he prays, right? That's what he does at the Mount of Olives. So, while Jesus was praying, wicked men were planning on getting this woman and trapping Jesus. I'll say it again. While Jesus was praying, hypocrites were planning. Okay? That's what's going down here. And so if you want to talk to somebody about their sin, you better be prayed up. You better be looking at your own heart first and foremost. Where's my sin? How does that come into play? Oh God, break me of my desire for this or that. Stop my actions in this area. I hate my sin. Pray about it. And before you talk about their sin, pray how that conversation would go. Pray how that's going to go down. Pray for the person you're talking to. But let your heart be broken on your sin. Be inward. Clean the inside of the cup. That's before you even open your mouth and talk to your neighbor about it. Number two, be honest. Be honest. I think whatever we can say about these men that drugged the woman out, they're not being honest. This is not like a real, oh, we really want to deal with this woman, as the law says. No, this is a trap. And that's dishonest. It's a dishonest trap for Christ. Let's be honest with people. I think that's going to take some humility. But being honest means, yeah, I struggle with sin too. This is what I deal with. This is what my life was like before Christ. And even with Christ, here's the places that I'm weak. We can be honest about ourselves when we talk about sin. I think it'll go a long way with the people that we talk with. Just be honest. 
It's what these men could not do. Honest. And it takes a lot of humility, I believe, to be honest. Sometimes we want to paint our life as better than it actually is, right? Like, we're Christians. I gave my life to Christ. Everything's good now, right? You should too. And we think that's going to communicate something to them. You know, like, I got, I got this nearly perfect sinless life, and you'll have that. No, no, they won't have that. They're going to keep struggling because you keep struggling. So be honest about it. And you say, well, if I'm honest, they're going to call me a hypocrite. That's okay. It's honest. It's honest. Jesus is still working on it. Uh, number three, be respectful. I mean, hypocrites are rude. They say rude things. They call people names. They're antagonistic. They get in your face. That's what hypocrites do. They make pronouncements about other people while they themselves struggle with the same thing. Right? It's like the person, the person that is complaining about people stealing at work and how, how bad that is. And they're cheating the IRS. You know, it's kind of like, you've just justified your sin. It's like the woman who goes to her friends and says, so-and-so is gossiping about me. And you are right now. About her. Gossiping about you. You know? I mean, this is what we do. This is the human condition. Like, we're, we're hypocrites. But let's be respectful to people. Let's treat them well. Let's admit our failures. Um... What if we just use gentle language? Like, what if we just tried to do that better with the people that we talk to about sin? I think they'd hear us out if our tone changed. And I see that with Christ. I see Him speaking about this woman. I see Him, you know, as she is standing in the midst of a crowd, embarrassed, what is He doing? Writing on the ground, which takes everyone's attention off of her her clutching her garments or whatever she was wearing or not wearing that day. And they all look at Christ instead. Respect for the person. Four, uh, be biblical. Be biblical. Um, what I mean by that is, uh, it's okay to say, this is what the Bible says. This is what I believe. I live by the book. The book works. It's my rule book for living. It's my relationship with Christ on the page. This is it. And I hear, so I do seminars sometimes at conferences, and one of the most frequent questions I get when, when I'm talking about a hard topic is, so how do I talk about this topic with my friend who doesn't believe the Bible? And I understand the motivation for that question. I want to, you know, I think it's good that we want to use logic sometimes to talk about, like, why a simple lifestyle doesn't work, you know? And I'm thankful for people like Robbie Zacharias or a Tim Keller who can just say, let's just reason this out. What you're doing doesn't make sense. There's a place for all of that, and I'm very welcoming of that. But I'm also very welcoming and very much promoting the Bible. Isn't it the sword? Isn't it that which convicts? I remember a time when evangelism methods were kind of like you do the Romans road, right? Let me open up Romans to you and show you how all have sinned. I can't tell you how many times I've taken the napkin or piece of paper and drawn out for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You do the two cliffs. And Jesus 
is the one who bridges the gap between us and God. That's just Romans, you know, illustrated. There's something powerful about the Bible in our lives, so why wouldn't we use it for somebody else? And if they reject it, they reject it. But why don't we use it? Why aren't we confident of it? I see some churches, I see some pastors talking as if they're almost embarrassed to pull the Word of God out to give to people. As far as I know, it's still the Word of God. I trust it. I trust the Word. Jesus trusted the Word. And He used it. And when He used it, however many men were there, the text says, I mean, can, can you see it? You know, let him who is without sin. And, and, you know, movie show, like if you watch a movie about this, you probably see guys with like rocks in their hand, right? And they all drop them at the same time. And it's like a powerful, cue the music, you know, and the music comes on and, oh my, you know. Uh, but uh, probably if they grabbed whatever was handy to do the stoning, they probably grabbed temple building materials, you know. Like, we're ready. Um, temple was under construction even at that time. There's always renovations and things going on. They probably just grabbed building materials. And they were ready to go. And, and the Bible says that after Jesus said that, let him was without sin, he bent down and he started writing again. And the older ones got it first. The gray-haired guys were like, oh, we lose. The match is over. And they walk away. And you can see the younger guys kind of like, are we still on? Are we still going? I'm ready. He said it. He commanded us to cast a stone, right? And I, I, I could just see an older, gray-haired man walking away going, son, it's done. Put it down. We're going home. And off they walked. And they did walk off. And I do believe that they went back to darkness and the woman stayed in the light. She is standing. Jesus is kneeling. He has just written something in the ground. And then Jesus stands back up and he says to her, where did everybody go? Isn't there anybody here to condemn you? And she says, no. And he says, I don't condemn you either. Go, but leave your life of sin. Leave your life of sin. And I believe she did because she stayed in the light. You know, the guys walk away, right? Right? They, 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 they drop their building blocks and, and off they go. And she should have left the scene as well, right? She should have been like, I'm out of here. i got to get out of here while the getting's good. I just got about got killed, you know? But she stayed, right? She stayed with Jesus. I think there's a connection there. And I believe she did leave her life of sin. Listen, <clears throat> the antidote for hypocrisy, this is it. The antidote for my hypocrisy, your hypocrisy, is stay in the light. That's the verse after, right? Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. When you step into the light, it's painful because it convicts you, right? The light says, man, you messed up. You broke the commands of God. We are people of the book and you didn't live by the book. The light hurts. It's truth. It convicts. But in the same moment, it acquits you as well. It applies grace as well. 
The same light that convicts you also acquits you. And the men just didn't hang around long enough to be acquitted, did they? They felt the conviction. And when people feel the conviction, they scurry away back to the darkness. But the woman remained in the light, and she was acquitted of her sin. This is what we do. We stay in the light. We stay in the light. It can be painful at times when our sin is exposed, but it's for our good. Because we're acquitted. We're free. Um, This all happened during the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus proclaimed, I am the light of the world during the Feast of Tabernacles. There's a ceremony. I'm going to close with this. There's a ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's called a a Temple Illumination Ceremony. They get these four giant torches. Four giant torches. And they light them up. And it is said that you can see the light from... I mean, this is just what they wrote about it back then. They said you could see the light as far as Galilee. The light of the world. And it was so that the light would go out to all people. That's why they made it bright. And so there wasn't no... It wasn't an accident that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I mean, this is their reference point. And do you know do you know what they used to wrap the tops of the torches when they burned them? They wrote that they used old, worn out priestly robes to light these torches. Old, worn out priestly garments. And I don't know if it's prophetic or not. I don't know. But I do know that when Jesus was dying on the cross for your sin and my sin to pay the price you deserve to pay, they divided his garments into four pieces. The soldiers divided into four. And I don't know if that harkens back to the four torches that you see up in front of you today. That's pretty amazing. That even his robes proclaim light to the world. May we all live in it. May we all stay in it so that we may not be hypocrites. Father, we love you. You're such a friend to us. Jesus, you're so close to us. You have covered our sin. You didn't just overlook it. You didn't just wink at it. No, you you dealt with it. And you call us away from it. Lord, we are so good. We are well trained at pointing out the faults of others. It seems like people have probably been that way for thousands of years. Would you help us when we have to have sin conversations? Would you help us when we feel superior to somebody else? Would we remember 
would you help us remember this story? And remember to dwell in your light where there is conviction from sin, but also acquittal from sin. Thank you for your great forgiveness. It's in your name we pray. Amen.